Hello, everyone. Welcome to the TeamCast. I'm Coleman Ruiz, Director of Performance at the Mission Critical Team Institute. And the TeamCast is a show where my colleagues, Dr. Preston Klein, Claire Murphy, Harry Moffat, and myself, along with our guest, discuss all things Mission Critical Teams. Mission Critical Teams are teams of four to 12 people who are indigenously trained and educated and who solve rapidly emerging complex adaptive problem sets. MCTs work in immersive environments of 300 seconds or less, where the consequence of failure is death or catastrophic loss. Regardless of whether you're on a mission critical team or not, we aim to bring you the broadest range of topics and guests as possible. Thanks for joining us, and I hope you enjoy the TeamCast. Hi, welcome back to the TeamCast. This is Dr. Preston Klein. Today, I have the honor and privilege to basically be in a conversation with a friend of mine named uh, Dr. Dan Dworkis. I got to know Dan because Dan runs another podcast called The Emergency Mind. And why this matters for everyone who's listening is because when you go out to look at the literature of mission-critical teams, you can find a lot of literature on special operations. You can find just a little bit on fire. There's urban and wilderness. There's not a lot, but there's some. There's very little little on tactical law enforcement, and there's actually very little on emergency medicine. There are books, anthropological books, like Forgive and Remember, that go back by Charles Bosk, back to the 70s. You've got Abtul Gawande's work. But recently, Dan has published The Emergency Mind, a book you can find on Amazon. And why I'm excited about this book for Mission Critical Teams is because it gives you access into a world of emergency medicine that has many parallels to the teams in special operations, tactical law enforcement, fire, NASA, et cetera. And so this is why it was important to me to get Dan on the show and and sort of talk about some of this stuff. Dan is a clinical assistant professor of emergency medicine at University of Southern California Keck School of Medicine. And he did his training at what I just found out was Hammer, which is pretty awesome. But it's it stands for the Harvard Affiliated Emergency Medicine Residency Program up in Massachusetts. And so both he and I spent some time in Cambridge and it's just a fun, really rich historical place to do work and study different things because so much history happened in those places. And so just as a way of starting, I wanted to first just have Dan say hello to everybody and, and add anything that I might have forgotten. Awesome. Preston, thank you so much. And, and hi, everybody. It's a total honor to be on the team cast here and to talk to you all. I'm a, a huge fan of everything Mission Critical Teams and just, just absolutely honored to be here. Thanks so much. We're honored. I'm going to dive in with a, a specific question that I've been bouncing around with now for a few months, maybe almost a year. And it has to do with, you know, in this show, we talk about liminality, that place, that threshold between the ordinary world and the extraordinary world. When we step into the fire, we step into the emergency room. There are layers of liminality, however, and there are layers of liminality between the experts and the novices, the people who everyone has a first day, right? And so you you are an attending physician in um, USC's emergency department, if I'm saying that right. And uh, there will be a a resident, there will be a a medical student who will come and it will be their first day. It'll be the first day they pick up the scalpel. And there's this moment, maybe 30, 15, 30 seconds, maybe a little longer, where you have an opportunity to talk to them and to bridge all this years of classes, of books in that moment. And everybody who's listening can appreciate we've both been there, but we also now, we've both been on both sides of this probably, the receiving end and the transmitting end. 
But there's this moment where you've got to somehow get past that tacit knowledge problem, which is they think they know what's supposed to happen, but you actually know what right looks and feels like. And so in those moments, how do you go about trying to just bridge them in to the applied nature of medicine? Yeah, that, that's such a timely question too, because, you know, so I have a shift, uh, you know, sort of after we're done here today, and it actually will be some doctor's first days on that shift. So I will literally be doing this today. You know, when I was working this past weekend, it was it was several people that I was working with. It was their first maybe five minutes of ever actually being a functional physician. You know, and you're sort of like welcoming them to the family on the one hand and also being like, okay, try not to set anybody on fire on the other hand. And that was actually, I think, the, the speech I gave one of them recently, like, welcome to the family, don't set anybody on fire trying not to do anything I can't fix. But no, in all seriousness, like you're going to do great. I'm, we're happy you're here. And, you know, sort of like bridging that gap between what you've learned in a theory and trying to get it into the patient in front of you. And it's really a recursive, almost a fractal problem, yeah. right? Because the same skills that help you get from that first moment are the same things you apply later when you're trying to learn how to deliver your knowledge under pressure. And that's what I, that's what I spend most of my time thinking about is how to do that step, how to take the knowledge of, okay, I understand that the problem proper dose of this particular drug is 300 milligrams, but how do I deliver that knowledge at the very point of the spear to the patient that needs it right in front of me? So I think that that there's really a couple things embedded in this idea of of the day one or the first day problem or whatever you want to call it, right? And so first off is is taking a step back and thinking about yourself as a human and as a, as a physician or as a team leader, as a, a member of a mission critical team and realizing that like, while I know a lot, I don't know everything. Right. I am a work in progress and holding that sort of center of myself. I am a continuing work in progress. And so I'm not really the wise old expert trying to indoctrinate this person into everything, although sometimes I adopt that role right? Really more, I'm like the person who's just a couple steps ahead, also hammering on myself constantly. And I'm saying, hey, look, here's how I hammer on myself. Here's a hammer. Try to start hammering on yourself. And I think that that fundamental shift is something that's incredibly important to start with. Because you think about like, what would the, what would the absolute best version of all of us look like, right? It's a group of aware, productive, healthy humans who are trying to become the best version of themselves, trying to master themselves and understanding that that's part of this thing. And that I'm not a master teaching a student in as much as I'm that I'm also a student learning at the same time. So embodying that sort of never ending quest for growth is a big piece of it. So I want to make it really contextual. So here's a moment you're in an emergency department in comes a kid and with all kids come parents, right? This parent is bringing them to the emergency room because they've encountered some injury or illness that's beyond their understanding. They, they are lost and they are scared and they are coming to an expert, right? Who, who in their mind will know the solution. And then at the same time, having worked with medicine, been in medicine, worked with folks like yourself, there is a limit, as you were saying, to what you actually can know, right? You can't know all things. So there's this balance between wanting to exude confidence while at the same time having the humility to understand you can't know all things. And so in that day-to-day moment, in that moment where the mother's handing you the child, how are you balancing that notion of certainty and uncertainty, that, that balance between confidence and humility? 
Yeah, that's that's a great question. And and I, I think that you have to embody these two roles, right? You have to be a human that is imperfect and practicing an imperfect science and doing your best at it. And you also have to be the embodiment of literally everything humanity has ever figured out about medicine at that same moment. And you have to smash those two things together at the edge of that line. When I read stuff, for instance, like Peter Lashak's book, Ghost to the Fireground, talking about wildland firefighters, right? Like he talks about that same sort of thing where like you have to be a human and and, you know, sometimes you twist your ankle and your ankle hurts or you're tired or you're hungry, but you also have to embody the entirety of humanity's fight against fire in that one moment. And that that's not a small thing, right? It's not a small thing. And to say that it's a small thing and to gloss over it is to do a great disservice to yourself, to the patients that are in front of you, to the people that suffer and to everybody that's built anything behind you, right? Because you are definitely aware of the shoulders of the giants that you're standing on when you're, when you're in that room trying to take that first couple steps. Now, at the same time, that's not what the parent wants to hear, right? They don't want to hear about how you're an imperfect human and they don't want to hear about how you're embodying the best that medicine has to offer to humanity, right? They want you to get their kid better. And so that's what you do. You step forward. But to understand that, as you describe it, the liminal space that you're going in and out of those spaces. And sometimes that space involves putting your head down and doing the best you can. And sometimes it involves taking a step back and recognizing the, the limitations of your own behavior as a human. So in that moment, as I get older, this might be an age thing, I am increasingly startled, like genuinely startled by people who have a certainty that they believe that they know a thing, especially when it comes to mission critical stuff like, oh, we absolutely this is absolutely true all the time. And I'm always startled by that because the more I study, I feel like the less I actually know is true. And so in a world that is rife with uncertainty, that you're constantly moving between what you know and what you don't know, when you encounter specifically, let's say a resident, a learner, right? When you encounter somebody who seems to be overconfident or even worse, maybe willfully ignorant of the uncertainties. They're just choosing to like not look at them as a leader or as a, as a coach or as a mentor. How do you handle that? Yeah. So normally folks like that, and this is a big generalization, which is ironic given what you just said, but you know, we're going to generalize slightly and say that normally folks like that are ignorant of it or willfully ignorant of it, either because they're afraid or because they haven't been in the dirt enough. They haven't seen enough suffering. They haven't been washed in that suffering. And that tends to come out as sometimes arrogance or overconfidence or a neglect of the underlying reality of imperfection of humans. And once you go through enough stuff, once you see enough people suffer and die despite your efforts to take care of them and, you know, deliver enough conversations to patients telling them they have cancer or HIV or aren't going to survive this overdose they just took. And you're talking to the families. Once you get washed in that humanity over and over again, it's a lot harder to feel that arrogance, I think. Unless you're responding to it from fear, and this is your this is your just your defense mechanism. You know, I think about it like this. I think about like I'm constantly going up against life and death, as a lot of people in mission critical teams are, and that friction from that tends to polish you as a human. Yeah. And if you let it, if you if you open yourself up to being polished by that. In the residue paper, we talk about residue and suffering as privilege. And mm -hmm. this is the first time Absolutely. You, when I just heard this, washed in suffering is a great way to sort of think about that. It's a great visual because when I think about my early days as a young person and when I first encountered suffering, I have a certain amount of empathy and it is a genuine 
It's a genuine trauma. It's a genuine shock. It's a genuine assault upon yourself. And it wasn't until later that I started to see it as a privilege, but also to understand that I could be washed into it without letting it into me. And this notion that that I could learn from it and we could move on, that it wasn't something I either had control over, but it was something I could learn from. And I love that expression. I didn't know if you wanted, I know you talk about it in your book and I, I didn't know if you had anything more you wanted to add on that concept. If you make me pick one thing that I've learned from being an ER doctor that is the centerpiece of everything that I do, it is the idea of never wasting suffering. Yeah. If I could only teach one thing and say one thing, that's my like billboard answer, right? If I could have a billboard in front of every human, it would be never waste suffering. And if you really think about that, like you really, really dig in and think about that, like don't waste your suffering. Don't waste the suffering of the person in front of you. Don't waste your friend's suffering. Don't waste anybody's suffering. What does that actually mean to live a life like that, right? Where it means that you're, you're open to it. You're recognizing the suffering. You're trying to incorporate it and leverage it and learn from it. You are not trying to gloss over it or run away. You're sitting there in the fire being like, okay, I'm, I'm on fire. What can I do about this? And then what am I going to do tomorrow? Assuming I survive today to make myself better and my team better tomorrow for everybody around me. And, and that's to me, the commitment of, of being a doctor, of being in these spaces, of being in these mission critical teams is to say, I'm going to go forward and deliver the best humanity has to offer. Now, implicit in that is I'm going to do all this. And we can talk about this, but I'm going to do all this stuff before I enter that space that it takes to be prepared to do that. Then I get in that space. I'm going to deliver everything that I have to offer as a representative of humanity. Then I'm going to leave that space. And if I leave that space, if I live, then I'm going to dig in and learn and make sure the next time I'm in that space, I'm better and humanity is better as a result of it. Yeah. And we will definitely talk about the the pre, during, post. And I, Mm -hmm. I just, but I do want to set up some of these let's call them metaphysical contextual sort of issues, right? That those of us who have or do work in those worlds have to wrestle with, have to consider, have to think about. One of the things related to this and related to suffering, I think, and you mentioned in your book, is this notion of locus of control or what some what some researchers called agency. And just for those listening, the easiest way to sort of understand this, the way it's described in the literature, is that an internal, well, it's just an external locus of control is what inmates feel. Uh, their life is not, they do not get to control their own destiny. Their destiny is controlled, same as boot camp. Someone else is dictating when they get up, when they go to sleep, what they eat, what they wear, etc., An internal locus of control, right, with full, what they call full agency, is means that you are in full control of your own destiny. You recognize the choices that you make influence the world around you, and thus you are influenced. When it comes to suffering, there's a relationship there, right? Because when you take ownership of your own existence, of your own destiny, it creates a different relationship with suffering than if you have an external locus of control. If you think things are being done to you, if you are a victim of this suffering, and I've been guilty of this in my life. I've been guilty when the bad day comes, I was like, why me? Which is in fact the wrong sort of immature question to ask. But with that as a context, I wanted you to kind of just sort of talk about the, the work that you've done on, on locus of control and as it relates to suffering or as it relates to joy. 
Yeah, that, I mean that that's uh, incredibly rich and and <laughs> deep space. And anybody that knows me knows I have a, a handful of tattoos, and they're all basically about that of yeah. one form or another. Is a reminder to myself of where my locus of control is yeah. and where to focus on it. Because um, I, I need visual reminders of that sometimes, especially when I'm in the middle of the dirt. And it's it's helpful to have that tattooed on me as a reminder. That said, I, I think that in emergencies, like in a lot of stuff that mission critical teams do, we don't always get to choose the reality that we face, right? We don't get to choose the the time or the place or the details. We are put into, or honestly, usually step into this liminal space to perform. And we don't get to control the universe. And, and that's very, very, very obvious to anybody that's ever been in one of these things. It's, it's so obvious as to be sort of ridiculous to say that you don't control everything, except that we often forget that and we try to control things that we don't actually have any agency over. And so the question becomes a little bit of like, well, if I can't control everything, what can I control? How do I accept the reality around me? How do I identify where I have the ability to act, where I do have agency? And then how do I throw every piece of me into that one space, right? So as a great example of that, you know, if anytime I have a, a pediatric trauma or a really sick kid come in, right, n- nobody wants that. And if I could control everything, I would never have a pediatric trauma, right? I would make sure that everybody's safe and nobody hurts children and, and all of the other things that all of us listening to this, I'm sure, want to be able to control to the universe. But the reality is, that, you know, none of us are omnipotent and it doesn't work that way. So when a sick kid comes in or an injured kid comes in, you have to respond to that feeling of, man, I wish this wasn't the case. But then you have to rapidly reorient yourself to where you do have control because that child and that family needs you to focus there. They need you to throw all of your energy there. And all of this energy you spend on wishing things were different or complaining about the fact that it's your day or your shift or whatever, all that's energy that you can't spend directed on that kid. And I think one of the first things that I, that I try to teach, you know, going back a little bit to this first day problem is the idea that you can't control everything and you need to focus on where you do have control. You need to rapidly decide where you have agency and do everything you can in that moment to help. One thing I would add, not add, I guess just to join in this conversation is in talking to some of the urban firefighting organizations, there are some firefighting departments that actually keep a track of, it's a traditionally uh, male-dominated, that's changing now, but traditionally a male-dominated field firefighting. And they keep track of those men who have young children. Mm -hmm. And invariably, if they're going to a house where they know there's young children in the house, they will hold those men back. And the reason is, is because to your point, we talk about this being able to the things that we can control and not control. It is often very academic when it's put that way. And what we often have to remember is that we're still human. We're still men and women. Right. We're still parents. We're still spouses. And we will still have visceral reactions where in our head we know this is a bad idea, but I'm going to do it anyway. And what they're finding is that firefighters will be at greater risk. They will take greater risks to go into a house for small children if they are a parent of a young child. And so some departments know that and act like and and sort of take account of that. I only say that because you know, to your point about I have a sprained ankle or uh, you know I have a bad day or or I'm just human, right? It's one thing to be able to say yeah, I want to be able to have a sphere of influence, know what I can control and not control. In a perfect world, yes. But as you're sort of highlighting, when a mother brings in a sick, hurt child, that's not a perfect world. And you can't sit there with sort of like an automaton. You're going to react as a human would react. And so can you say a little bit more about balancing sort of the intellectual, here's what I can control with the emotional, boy, do I want to control a lot more? 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I think it's worth doing two things here, that, which are sort of opposite from each other. So one is, I think we need to diverge briefly into Stoic philosophy, yeah. because I think that it contains the cornerstone or the the fulcrum of how to really do some of this stuff. And the other is, because I don't want to risk getting too far into philosophy, let, let's set up a scenario that's actually like a pretty realistic one, so we can sort of talk through how that, how that applies, right. right? So on a recent shift, and this is an amalgamation of a couple of things, I had a very young woman that was in a very serious car accident accident, had suffered a bunch of injuries and including had a very difficult airway, let's say. She'd received some injuries to her neck and she wasn't breathing all that well. And we had to make the decision about whether or not we should put her to sleep to induce anesthesia and put a breathing tube in. Anybody that's an EMT is certainly familiar with this or anybody that's functioned in an emergency setting is certainly familiar with this decision. And there's risks and benefits to it. It's not a cheap decision. If you do it right, you protect them. If it doesn't go the way you, you think, then you might end up pushing them over the edge and they're you know, might go into cardiac or respiratory arrest. There's, of course, no way to determine exactly what will happen ahead of time. There's there's ways to guide your decision, but there's no way to do it perfectly. So you're inherently in the situation where you don't really know what's going to happen, which is to say that it's the crux of almost anything a mission critical team does, right? You're in this liminal space and you have a couple of seconds to decide and you're forced to work in these areas which have catastrophic consequences if you do them one way or another. So really real decision, and you're sitting there thinking about it, and then a couple things might happen. So one, you might have a billion other things that start distracting you and other patients start coming in, but you have to maintain your focus. And as humans, we have a limited ability to focus. And two is maybe you get triggered by something that is an emotional trigger for one way or another. Maybe all of a sudden you look down and you realize, oh man, this person... This human being, not just this mannequin about which I have to make a decision, this human being has the same ring on that my wife does. Whoa. And then all of a sudden you're sort of, you're sort of thrust into this other area of things that's just, you know, deep in our brain and evolutionarily conserved and, and, and you have to deal with that reality of it. So in that moment, and I want you to put yourself in those shoes for a second if you're listening to this. You have a person in front of you. You have to decide whether or not to take over their airway and breathe for them. And all of a sudden, this person looks like you're, and then insert whoever really triggers you here, right? I'm sure you're thinking of somebody as you're listening to this. But what do you do with that, right? How do you handle that? How do you handle that situation with that emotion to it? And to me, one of the things I turn to is this idea of Stoic philosophy, which if you haven't read the Stoics, I would start with meditation by Marcus Aurelius. What they would say is that dealing with the reality of life, that stepping up and respecting the reality of what you're facing is one of the highest virtues of being a human. Not running away from it, not wishing it were different, just understanding this is what it is. And that includes all the way through death and suffering of loved ones and death and suffering of yourself. And so they have this other Stoic philosopher, Epictetus, who talks about this idea about being on a ship and realizing the ship's about to go down. And what do you do in those last couple of seconds? And what he says is essentially, you want to drown and drown fearlessly. And I think in a way, that's my answer to both of those things is that you want to drown and drown fearlessly. You want to feel the reality of being human, not run away from it, but also accept the reality that this is what you have. And all you have for this woman is the ability to make that decision, whether or not she looks like anybody you care about, whatever it is, like that's your moment to try to act for her. Does that yeah, make sense bringing those two things together? It makes total sense. And it, it's actually provoking a bunch of different thoughts for me. One is, you know, bringing us back to that one moment. And just because I think a lot of people listening will understand this. 
people on mission critical teams, physicians, obviously, but many mission critical teams are often placed in a position where doing something might kill someone, not doing something might kill someone in the same moment. And it is a very personal and it's a very isolating and it's a very intimate experience that is very hard to explain. Even if you're standing next to somebody, like in your situation, you're still very feeling incredibly isolated. And that feeling that moment where you realize I could get rescued, but if this is the life I've chosen, right, then rescue is not going to be an option. Like I'm making a choice right now that I will assume this or I will walk away. And what's interesting going back to what we were talking about, about fears is the old, not to be trite here, but the old samurai sort of accepting our own death. There's a book and became a movie, The Horse Whisperer, And one of the themes of this book, it's about a a girl and a horse being injured and having to sort of to recover. And one of the things in order to recover is they had to accept their biggest fear. They had to just acknowledge that it was going to happen, face it and overcome it, which sounds super trite. But the reality is that moment where you just say to yourself, what's the worst case scenario? Okay, I can die. Okay, am I cool with that? Can I drown with grace? Mm-hmm. then yes, okay, I can move forward. And for me, I, I have had that more than once where I've been like, what's the worst case scenario? Am I prepared to own that? Yep, okay, let's keep moving. Yeah, and and I think that there's a second piece of that, which is that can you drown fearlessly and can you drown in a way that teaches anybody else around you who's watching how to swim better? Yeah, yeah. Right, and that's always been, I've always joked with my with the people on my team about this, which is that like, I, I hope I die peacefully of old age at like 150, yeah. right? But failing that, I hope I die in some ridiculously spectacular way that teaches everybody else about like, oh, here's, here's what happens when this person catches on fire and is encased in ice at the same time or something stupidly weird like that. Yeah. Right? Because you, you want to leverage whatever it is. And it goes back to that idea of not wasting suffering yeah. as being one of the highest virtues. Yeah, it's it's pretty extraordinary. You know, all of what we've been talking about is just super helpful for me because it gives the language to the stuff that's often difficult to describe if you haven't lived the life. And even when you've lived the life, it's still sometimes hard to explain to other people in words that make sense. And metaphor, obviously, as a friend used to say, is a legitimate epistemological tool, which is just a fancy way of saying metaphor is a legitimate way of knowing things and relating to things and understanding things. And so one of the things that people often ask me when I say mission critical teams, well, what do you mean? And in your book, you talk about emergency department. What is an emergency? And Right now, during COVID especially, there's a lot of people that I'm talking to in various worlds that talk to me about trauma. Trauma for me is a word that we should be very careful with. It's like love or hate. It's a word that has massive power and should not be used indiscriminately. Not A bad day isn't trauma, right? Like hitting your toe is not trauma. Trauma is something different and it's different for different people. But this is my attempt to be sort of thoughtful about the language we use and about the way it gets perceived. And, you know, we often talk about, you know, because there are shows like emergency and there's emergency departments and emergency is one of those words that gets used all the time. But from your perspective, as a person who lives in the center of that storm, when you think about what an emergency is, what are the things that you're thinking about? Yeah, definitely. And, and to me, this goes also to the idea that, you know, inherent in this idea of being part of a mission critical team is that not everything you do is in that liminal space, right. right? So you can be in that moment and in that moment, what you're describing those, you know, 
300 seconds or less, catastrophic failure, inability to walk away from it and being in that moment. That to me, when I translate that to emergency, I think about three things. I think about pressure, uncertainty, and impact. And these are moments where there is real uncertainty. Like you don't know what to do for real. Not just you sort of don't know what to do, but there's really uncertainty about what to do about the outcomes or about both. There's impact of your decisions, which is often life or death in, in my world, but even maybe not life and death or maybe the loss of a limb or a, a severe stroke or something like that with catastrophic um, associated things with it. And then there's pressure, which is that you're in, in some way or another, an unfriendly environment while you're doing this. And the most common is just time pressure. You only have a couple of seconds to figure out what to do, but also often there's screaming or emotional stress and other patients needing your care. Sometimes you're even in an antagonistic environment where you have the threat of physical injury to yourself or your team at the same time. But so for me, it's that triangle, pressure, uncertainty, or impact. Now, I can spend my entire day in a shift in the ER, and I might only feel like I'm actually in that liminal space of an emergency for a couple of seconds during that time. Because again, there's this, there's these levels to it. Just like somebody on a mission-critical team doesn't, on a team capable of doing mission-critical events, doesn't mean they're always in a mission-critical moment. Okay. So taking a step back from that, you you sort of end up with this dichotomy about being like, I am a human who can perform in mission critical moments, or I am not a human that can perform in mission critical moments. And if I want to be one, what does it take to be one? What does it take to be somebody that can perform in mission critical moments, or to use my words for it slightly differently, to really perform in an emergency? Now, if I am one, what is my responsibility to stay there? How do I make sure I'm sharp and I'm ready and I'm trained and I'm happy to be there. What do you do with that, right? Because there's the day one problem of how do you get people towards that? But then at the end, they have to decide that they want to be that person that can step into that role. And I can't take anybody across that line, right? right. You have to go yourself. And once you cross that, or at least for me, having crossed that, now I'm faced with a, a similar problem, which is the day insert, however many number of days I've been doing this problem, which is today, what am I going to do to stay sharp and get better? And sometimes that's a parallel problem. And sometimes it's an entirely different problem. But understanding that I will likely in the course of my life and even in the course of my day, dip in and out of these mission critical moments. If that's reality, then what do I do? So it's interesting because, you know, what I do want to tie in here is from a a mythological point of view or um, anthropological point of view, medical caregivers go back to the earliest sort of human species, right? And there's mythological components to working in medicine. And one of them is the hero's journey, right? And this notion of the call to action. The call to action isn't just, oh gosh, I want to wave the flag and go to the front. It's also a personal decision of leaving the ordinary world to enter into the extraordinary world. And there is a cost. And this is the part that a lot of people don't understand. And the cost is you will never be able to go back to ignorance. You will never be able to unsee, to unfeel, to unknow. You'll never be able to go back to just sitting on your porch, thinking about just the silly things in life. You will always have some knowledge of the other side. And that that is both an illuminating joy and it is a bit of a curse. And to your point, right, when you lead somebody up there, even though they may have been to school for a long time, once you put the scalpel in their hand, once they hear the screaming, once they smell the blood, once they feel the shaking, there's that line, right, where 
I have either I have to take the call to action or I refuse the call to action. And that is about everyone's personal agency and locus of control. And so I guess my question to you would be in in your years of experience, when you think about those residents or yourself, when you're watching them go to that line for the first time, how are you supporting them? How are you helping to to shape that moment? Yeah, absolutely. First, by example right? I am living myself as an example of somebody who is dedicated to training and getting better. And I tell my residents that they should be able to ask me at any point of any day, Dan, what are you working on right now? And I should have an answer for them because conscious practice is part of getting better at performing in emergencies. And they should be able to ask me that in terms of what knowledge are you accumulating, but also more importantly, in terms of Dan, what experiments are you running on yourself right now to get better? both from in terms of applying knowledge under pressure and just as a human in general. And I get asked this by my residents and I love it because we get to talk about it. But to guide somebody up to that line, to me, requires being somebody who's also continuing to step up to that line and recognizing that it's not once, it's not a one-time decision, it's an every-time decision. And if that's true, then what do I need to do as a human and as a doctor to keep getting better every shift? When you expand that out or when you multiply that out, I think it requires creating a culture of knowledge and experimentation that's not just, this is the way we've always done it, this is the sacred way we do it, do it this way and shut up about it, right? But instead enables you to have a space where striving and experimenting and getting better is the idea that nobody's ever a cooked finished product. So how do you do that with the other people that are your level on your team? Right. And all this happens behind the scenes because all this person is seeing is, and their wide eyed look is they're getting up there and it's the first time they're doing a cardiac arrest and man, they've understood how to do CPR, but this is the first time they are hands on chest on another human. And they will never forget that moment. I've never forgotten mine. Yeah. You, you know, the first time you feel somebody's rib break under your hand, like you never forget that moment. I don't want to forget that moment. I owe it to that man to not forget that moment, right? But all they see is this. So how do you create the space around them that enables it? And so part of it is what do you do days, weeks, months before? You train yourself. You create a culture where training is expected and important. And then on the day of, you talk to them about it. You say, hey, this is the deal. You're about to cross this space and join this, this brother and sisterhood of the people that have done this. Most humans have never chosen to do this, but you're here and you're making this choice. Yeah. Right. One of the things that I'm always fascinated about is that as I travel the planet and I, and I go in and out of hospitals and medical fields, I will invariably have somebody who will come up to me and say, man, I'm really tired. I'm really overwhelmed. I'm really struggling. And I have to turn to them and I go, look, here's the deal you guys are the rescuers. No one's coming to rescue you. And you can't be in a mindset where you're waiting for the solution to arrive. Because quite honestly, that's why everyone's coming to you. You've got to be proactive in doing that. And going back to something you referenced a minute ago, what made me think of this was the fact that almost all of the people that I know that are doing well are in the back of their head working on some impossible problem. They're like, yeah, before I die, I think I'm going to cure cancer or get to Mars or fix this wildland. Like, it's incredibly impossible. And But in their mind, they're like, I'm going to chip away at it. Yeah, absolutely. Because that's literally the life I've chosen. I have not chosen to be normal. I have chosen to be extraordinary. And is, there is a duty and obligation to try to move the needle on some impossible thing. But that mindset of 
I can get better and I can actually influence the world, not just my little world. It's both arrogant and also inspiring. And I think it's it's unique to the world of mission critical teams. Hmm. Yeah, I love that idea. I love that idea of what, what maybe I'll add that to the list of list of things to think about is what giant problem am I working on today? Yeah. Not just in my own little like my what impossible sphere. thing that right now everyone's like, yeah, yeah, we can't do that. No, I'm actually gonna work on that. And say it out loud without any like, no, I'm actually going to give a shot. Why not? Am I going to fail? Probably. But but who cares? Maybe I won't. We should at least have some people working on it. I love it. As you're talking about that day one problem, so you get the person up there, they're doing CPR. And I think it's incredibly, incredibly important for that human's development for the rest of their career, really. How you handle the couple of moments after that. What do you talk to them about? Let's yeah, you hold want to that jump back thought. to that. We're gonna, okay, we're, gonna, we're gonna come back to that because I'm actually what I'm gonna do now is I'm gonna build up what we call an evolution of an immersion event. And so Great. I want you to think about the 30 seconds prior, not not the years of preparation. We can mm-hmm. talk sure. about that. We'll come back to that. But I literally mean the 30 seconds, and then I mean in the immersion event. So it's not an individual, it's a team, right? And then to mm-hmm. your point, the 30 seconds or the five minutes or whatever that follows. And just to bridge our our listeners in from the different teams, a couple of things about medicine that's different from almost all the other teams. And that is, if I'm on a special operations team, I deploy somewhere else to execute. If I'm on a firefighting organization, I will be at my fire station, get in my truck, and I will drive to the fire. If I'm in tactical law enforcement, I hop in my car, I put on my lights and sirens, and I go to the threat. In medicine, everything comes to you. So you're operating in a world, in an ecosystem, where it is both liminal and non-liminal, moment to moment. You are walking in and out of hallways and rooms. You're not going to a place and coming back home to rest. While you're there, there is no rest because you're walking in and out of these environments. In every case, the threat, so to speak, or the injury or whatever it is, the critical environment, the liminality is coming to you. It's arriving at you. There are some benefits to this, which is that you get to control the room and the walls and the ceiling and the weather and the temperature. And there are some downsides to this, which is there is a normalization of some things that should not be normalized, right? And one of the things that I want to say out loud to some of our listeners that has been said to me is they said, well, Preston, you know, when we do summits or whatever, why are we inviting uh, medical folks? Because their lives are not in danger when they do it. And almost all of us, we're in physical danger. And that's a difference. That is true, except for one important thing. And, and Dr. Charles Schwab, who was head of trauma at UPenn since retired, he's emeritus now, he um, was a former Navy doc. And one of the things he said to me, which was uh, really a wake-up call to me, he's like, Preston, listen to me. I've been doing this a long time. And if you said, hey, Preston, a child, a nine-year-old child's coming in and they're dying and I got to fix it. I'm going to focus. If you put me in an intersection, in a firefight, and a nine-year-old child needs to be saved, I'm going to do the exact same thing. He says, I get that there's a threat. I also get that I'm so invested in what I do. The other stuff is less relevant to me. And he was speaking as a person who had been in combat or been near combat. So he wasn't speaking to this hypothetically. He he actually knew. But there is a level of professionalism. There's a level of engagement where some of that stuff becomes not as relevant as it may seem on its face. And so I'm saying all of that in contextual to bridge some people in, but before we go towards the pre, during, post, I'll I'll pause and see if you have any comment pushback on that description. 
Yeah, I mean, first off, I have nothing but enormous respect for members of mission critical teams that perform under direct physical threat to their own lives or to the lives of their family. That that is not a space that I operate in, and and I have deep respect for the people that do. As an emergency doctor, I own the walls and the space of my emergency department and the resuscitation room, which I can control to greater or lesser extents. One of the unique things about an emergency doctor compared to say, a a surgeon or a pediatrician or something else, though, is that we are often called out of that to do some sort of an event, right? So I might be called up to a floor or some other part of the hospital to the cath lab or even outside to the front door in the parking lot to take care of a patient who is incapacitated or in cardiac arrest. So we bridge the gap a little bit around that, which is that most of the time I'm performing around a team of people that I'm able to, to use your words, indigenously train and sort of bring up. But then sometimes you leave with just a backpack and you go to another area and you're immediately taking over the team and sort of running your own show somewhere where you've never been. Often you don't even physically know how to get there or not. And there's there's interesting details to all of those pieces of it that require us to think and perform in ways that are completely the same and sometimes in ways that are very different. Okay. So what I'd like to do is I'd like us to pick, and I'm going to let you do it, but I'd like to pick, I'll describe what I'm looking for, which is an ambiguous medical environment or an escalating medical environment. So I'm thinking now about something like a basal skull fracture or an abdominal injury where it could be a bad day or it could be they're going to die in five minutes, where you don't actually know until you you gather as much data as you can. And I want to sort of have you draw a picture of whatever it is, whether it's 60 seconds, whether it's a couple of minutes, whether it's 30 seconds, whatever it is, those moments where you are seeing patients, you're grabbing something to eat, you might have a cup of coffee, you're talking to your residents, the call comes in and you've got a period of time for you and your team to spool up from when that moment where that patient is directly in front of you, and then we'll pivot to during. So right up to the moment where you scalpel in hand, so sort of walk us through the sort of components that are there. Yeah, absolutely. So so let's pick an example that happens many, many times on, on a lot of shifts, which is you're in a busy emergency department. LA County, where I work, is, is arguably the largest and busiest on the West Coast. You know, we have enormous numbers of patients and huge wait times and, and these big areas. And you're working and you're seeing patients and you've got Maybe let's say at the moment I'm as the attending physician in control of somewhere around 12 to 14 rooms and a team of two or three docs and a bunch of nurses and a ton of staff. And it just sort of like ripples outward from there. And they're all full. And everybody's in there. You've got people that are are maybe having, you know, a minor heart attack. This other guy's maybe having a stroke. There's some people that are injured. There's some folks that are suffering from overwhelming infections and everybody's partway through their workup. And, you know, you're sort of taking that sip of that proverbial sip of coffee that happens right before, like, you know, everything explodes on you. You can usually feel it. You can usually feel that sip of coffee. And then the radio goes off and you have an EMS call in and they say, Hey, we are ETA three minutes away with a blunt trauma altered. That's it. Sometimes that's all you get. Sometimes you get a set of vital signs. And so let's let's add some urgency to it and say patient is a little tachycardic. His heart rate's going too fast. It's a young man. And his blood pressure is a little bit on the lower side. He seems to have been hit by a car. We don't really know. We found him down in the street. And so there's your scenario. So within the next two to three minutes, let's call it that, because usually you get a slight warning, 
you and your team are doing a number of tasks. First, you're deciding which patient out of all the patients you have can be safely deposited into a hallway to clear up a room. All right. Then you have a minute to flip that room and to set up for any of a number of scenarios ranging all the way from the EMTs, the paramedics are incorrect. The guy's in perfect health and he comes in saying, you know, what the hell guys, all the way to the other end, which is that this patient is deathly ill and might lose their pulse. Their heart might stop or they might stop breathing within seconds of them arriving in that room. At the same time, you're trying to set up where I work, you're trying to set this up in an environment that allows people of different training levels to perform at the top of their ability and even to push them slightly farther to where they might not yet feel comfortable. So I'm going to tease out some of this, all right? So you mm -hmm. and I have talked in the past, people certainly who are familiar with my work have heard me talk about the merits of cognitive diversity, the idea that we have a lot of different people looking at a problem. And by having a lot of people from different backgrounds looking at a problem, we have more tools in the toolkits, and we have more likelihood to come up with novel and appropriate solutions, as opposed to what are more homogeneous teams where everybody thinks the same. In a hospital environment, you've got you've got gender, you've got race, you've got age, you've got experience, different levels of experience. You might have different philosophies, different politics, different religions. All of this soup is, is swirling around in this environment. And obviously, everybody is mission focused. However, if you are, just to give you an example, if you are a nurse who has been 25-year veteran and have watched a lot of residents come in and go of various quality. And you might be a little tired of some of the same mistakes happening over and over again. That might be one dynamic, right? There could be, you know, there's like a zillion. I, we keep going. My point is, if you could comment on the sort of social ecosystem that's happening in that context and what role that may or may not play in what you're doing. Yeah, there's, a, there's an enormous variety of people that, that are on board for one of these types of things, especially if the patient incoming meets certain baseline criteria where we have what's called a trauma team activation. And this is sort of the, the next generation of things, which is that we've, we've understood that if we use certain thresholds and activate teams ahead of time, we bring in resources and diverse opinions and diverse skill sets that are ready to go right when the patient gets there. So we might have people in that case that are not only just within the emergency mindset, but our trauma surgeons or respiratory therapists or anesthesiologists, everybody comes with their own set of abilities, skills, and their own knowledge and desire. Also, like we were talking about earlier, every single one of these people are humans. Some of them are having bad days. Some of them are having good days. Some of them feel great. Some of them are exhausted at the end of their shift. Some of them are just starting. And you mash all those things together and you have to, from this derive a functional team that able is able to diagnose, close on the problem and fix the problem before that person dies. And that's a real challenge. That's a real challenge when you've done it with those people before. It's another challenge when you're doing it in terms of you know what we'd call a flash team or a swarm team where people are coming together to do this moment and maybe they've never worked together before. So to make it slightly more real, especially now, right in this June, July sort of period of time is when everybody in the medical world takes a level up. All Everybody gets promoted at exactly the same time every year. So when I'm coming in, I might have as the head trauma fellow, somebody who I've never met before. This is my first time having a conversation with them. I don't know where they trained. I honestly don't even know sometimes if they are the trauma fellow or not, because unfortunately we're not that great at having bright name tags that show who we are, which is a fixable problem, but we'll ignore that for a moment. So 
you don't necessarily know these people, and this is maybe the first time that you're doing this. So you have the added layers of understanding that you're going to have a long, hopefully meaningful relationship and career with all these other people. And so you want to play in a way that allows you to serve not just this patient, but the next hundred that come in between, between your teams working together. So I want to balance this because, so I'm going to say this back to you. You're in an environment where you've got a bunch of people that you're working with within a social ecosystem. So you want to actually maintain or improve relationships. You don't want to be in a situation where you're thrashing relationships. At the same time, in your book, you talk about this concept of saying Freud, which is roughly translated as cold-blooded. And it's this notion that we have to be clinical, as they might say. We have to be controlling. We cannot be overly emotive in these environments because we've got to get stuff done. The downside of being what we would call the difference between routine and critical communication, the downside is, is that if I'm being flat-toned, projecting my voice, using brevity, it is hard for you to get any kind of body language or verbal cues about either my performance or how we're doing or anything else. And so you're navigating both the, the need to be this kind of flat clinician while at the same time operating in this diverse social ecosystem. So how do you go about balancing those two? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. When I do it the best, when I am the best at it, I am able to preface and sort of bracket off the times when I'm being like that and explain what I'm doing. And I'm able to say things like, guys, this is critical. This is what I need right now. Do you understand? Or even sometimes I'll use the idea of the sterile cockpit from the aviation world, right? Which is you yep. know, the idea that under 10,000 feet, you only talk about mission critical things, essentially. Right. I will actually say, folks, we're about to intubate this person, sterile cockpit in the room right now. Does everybody understand? Yeah. And then you sort of shift gears into that. It becomes harder or and or I am less good at it in moments where I don't have the right perspective to see it coming quite as far away. And so, and then you have to rely on a mix of personal relationships with people, right? People that know you and have seen you go through dirt and also a baseline level of respect to understand that everybody on your team is trying to do the best they can for that patient, right? You have to come into it with this belief that we're all here to serve this human. Otherwise we wouldn't be here. And if you believe that, then you sort of give people the space to prove themselves in, in a good way. This is one of the things that's sort of fascinating to me about medicine, specifically the social ecosystem, because as you've said, we have people that are coming in that maybe we never met before, but that doesn't mean they don't know about you because there's a story being told about all of us. And especially in a hospital environment, there's a Dan story, there's a Preston story, there is a story that gets shared at the lunchroom. And the question is, well, how are you informing, the, how are you influencing, how are you controlling that story? And if the story is that you're a jerk and that happens, then those people who are coming in, to your point, who are meeting you for the first time, who don't know your body language, who don't know this stuff, and if you're not having a great day, we're in the danger of being quickly labeled incorrectly. And so we actually have to do work in the hallways as well. Is that a fair, fair statement? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I had an interesting version of this challenge several years ago, which is that I started at a new hospital and it was my first shift. It was actually my, my, uh, you call it a shadow shift where you're, you're sort of like a supernumerary person on, and you're sort of like feeling your way through the thing. And the call came in really sick person coming in with a very low Glasgow coma score, meaning they probably have suffered a serious head injury and likely are not able to protect their airway and breathe on their own. Bad trauma, 
trauma team activation, Dan, you're up, you're going to run this. And so I hadn't yet finished shaking hands with everybody, right? It was the very beginning of the shift and you come in and you have all these people assembling. And so in addition to the normal problem of what do you do to spin up into this event, I had the extra problem of literally not knowing anybody and most people not knowing who I was. And so the question is, what do you say in that moment, right? To galvanize the team to get ready. And I said some version of, Folks, I'm Dan. It's great to meet you. I'm excited to meet all of you after the fact for this. We don't get the time I'd normally like in order to introduce myself. So I'm going to tell you two things. I run my room quiet and we're going to talk afterwards about everything that happened to make sure we're on the same page. Otherwise, it's one voice and it's mine. Is everybody clear? And that was the best I got. And the case went really well, actually. And afterwards, we talked quite a bit and debriefed about it. And the patient had vomited all over me, so I needed a new set of scrubs. And I think it was a very good sign that they gave me a comically small set of scrubs as a joke afterwards. (laughs) That's awesome. (laughs) Yeah. There is an expression that I've heard many times from the teams, all teams, which is the importance of naming a thing. And so if there is a, a specific something happening in the room, Instead of letting it fester, whether it be conflict or insecurity or whatever, the easiest thing is to name it and release it, right? And to say, as you've just pointed out, hey, folks, normally this would be a very different, but it's not. So we're going to go with this. And by naming it, it's acknowledging the imperfection, which is leading us into this concept of, as you said, wasabi or or suboptimal contexts, right? Wasabi, probably. Yeah, sorry. That's I. Uh, yeah, I said the wrong. I said the thing on sushi, right? Exactly. Yeah. 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 Wabi sabi. <laughs> sorry. There's a word I just didn't know. Um, and so it's this idea where I think in show, you know, we watch TV or we watch sitcoms, and everybody expects that you're operating in this really clean, perfect environment, but that is, uh, I don't think, ever the case, right? There's always a sort of suboptimal other word environment where things are imperfect. And how do you kind of help set that expectation in those first 30 seconds? Yeah, I think part of it is that you you learn to enjoy that part of the challenge to it. And you get sort of this like perverse joy out of like operating under circumstances that are less than optimal, right? You, you start to find the fun in it and you start to associate with people that also find the fun in it. And you make little jokes about it and you try to relieve the tension where you can for it. But I think you're right that naming what's going on and saying very clearly, this is a critical event. This is a trauma team activation. This is a time like, all right, folks, our priority is take this person's airway. Everybody in the room understands what you're doing. Like, guys, I'm worried about a cardiac arrest. Here's what we're going to do, right? These really clear, brief sets of communication that key off of these moments that really turn from left to right like that. And part of that is what you do when you're not doing those moments, right? If you're always yelling and you're always ramped up and you're always angry, nobody's going to listen to you in that moment when you need to be, yeah. right? And the more time you have to work with a team, the better you should be able to do this because everything you're doing, like you're saying, there's always this story. You're integrating everything, right? And one of the things I'm always talking to my junior doctors about, my residents about, is the idea that in six months, you might need that person to do something totally extraordinary and off of normal and to do it without question because you see some threat they don't. And the way that you're going to convince them to do that is by every single action you take between now and six months from now, by showing yourself to be a human, a caring, worthwhile human that's good and devoted to what they're doing and that takes their safety and their health at heart. 
right? That they trust you and they believe in you. And that's what's going to help them say, I don't know, Dan wants me to set this person on fire. Usually he tells me not to set people on fire. Okay. Like that's a bad example. Don't set people on fire. Yeah, yeah. But you you know what I'm saying? I do. One of the things I get teased about is that throughout my career of 30 years, whether it be emergency response or expeditions or rescue or whatever, one of my rules for my teams is no practical jokes. And it's in a world where it's rife with practical jokes. And it's often one of those things where people get confused by that. They're like, Preston, do you not have a sense of humor? And I said, here's the problem. The problem is, is that at some point, and this is to something you just said, at some point, I'm going to turn to you and say, we have to go right now. And you won't see the threat that I see, but you just have to be on my shoulder. And you need to know that if you turn to me and say, we need to go right now, I'm going to be right on your shoulder. I won't question. But if you do a practical joke that makes me hesitate, that hesitation is dangerous to someone and I won't tolerate it. And people are like, well, and I'm like, stop. That's my rule. That's my world. To your point about setting the context for how you can can fulfill your own best practice is really important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, a version of that that we use in the ER is don't run in the ER. Yeah. If somebody's running, then you either need to be running with them towards the sick person or away from whatever is on fire, yeah. <laughs> right? But otherwise, do not run because yeah. if and you, you'll see it, you'll see it. Somebody junior won't understand this rule and will jog somewhere and they'll pick up a team of five doctors that are sprinting ahead of them being like, where's the problem? Yeah. And it's just like a thing you want to reserve until you really need it. That's a great example. So what I'm going to do is I'm now going to pivot into crossing the event horizon into the immersion event. So we've we've done the built up. There's a social context. There's a threat. It's ambiguous. You're going to find some things out. I want to just remind our audience of a couple of terms. In mission critical teams, we talk about the difference between training and education. We train for certainty. We educate for uncertainty. We we think about developing skills or habits for unconscious action and principles and algorithms for conscious, what we would call decision-making. I want to introduce, Dan, to you, or, or not introduce, but just involve the concept of, I've been vocal about the fact that within the 300 second window, I don't think that everything that's happening is based on good decision-making because I'm not convinced that the process that's happening is always about decision-making. I think there is as Kahneman would talk about system one and system two, I think those manifest differently. So what I mean by that is, I think that part of your job is obviously making decisions and judgment, and that's a key part of your role. There is another part of your role, however, that is very reactive to stimulus, that is doing sort of drop-down menu, sort of this or this, this is very, very fast. It's not a reflective process, it's a reactive process. And so When I think about that, when you think about this environment, you've got both experienced people that have built-in habits, and I'm talking about fingers, wrists, elbows, but also eyes. What data am I looking at? What cues am I picking up? And you've got a novice. They don't have any of these habits yet. They've got a lot of knowledge, but they actually don't know what to do with their hands or their eyes or their body yet. And so you're trying to navigate both the patient, but you're also in a learning environment. Universities are your training people. So you're both obviously keep the patient alive, don't shoot the hostage, et cetera. That's key, 100%, full stop, doesn't need to be said. However, at the same time, there are novices that must be developed. And so as you're tracking this sort of training versus education, certainty versus uncertainty, decision-making versus sort of reactive heuristics or schema or algorithms that are sort of pre-programmed, you know, you're just always going to do this kind of thing. 
Take us through that sort of immersion event of let's call it 300 seconds or whatever it might be of what you're doing, and what the team's doing, and what are the dairy sort of bases that you need to be constantly hitting? Yeah, so so let's remind ourselves, right? So this is a person who was maybe hit by a car. We're not sure they're arriving. Their level of consciousness is depressed. They have some obvious head injuries. Their blood pressure's low and their heart rate's going too fast, all of which are indicative of potential bad things happening. And so you're right that within those seconds, we certainly don't have time to calmly and collectedly discuss all potential options and work our way through the problem and develop differentials and allow reflexive thinking and perform a Delphi method or any of this sort of stuff, right? We have to rely on a lot of fast processing mechanisms, some of which behave like the fast systems that Kahneman discusses, and some of which behave more like expert thinking systems that like what Gary Klein would discuss in Sources of Power. Most of our juniors are not going to have those expert level systems running, or if they do, they're restricted to very small areas where they might be an expert in one thing. So what we have to do is balance all of that. And of course, take care of the patient most importantly at the same time, right? So one of the things we do at the beginning is we instill throughout all of training and residency, a system of graduated pressure, which is that we apply graduated pressure to our trainees, both in the larger scale in terms of what they learn. And then within the microcosm of this 300 seconds, we apply graduated pressure to them as well. So what do I mean by that? Well, the person that actually runs the trauma is not me. I'm the attending, right? But the person that runs the trauma is the person right below me who we call the two-star role. And the two-star role is the most senior resident on shift at that moment. All right. So they're the ones who are just about at the end of their training or at this time of the year, they're the ones who have just been promoted to their fourth year, the final year of their training. And it's their job to run that room and to run the team. And my job is to be there to oversee everything, to support them, to step in if there's something that they're not experienced enough to handle, which does happen, and then to process everything at the same time on the side. So they run the room and then each person underneath them has a particular skill set that they might develop. And hopefully if we do this well, and if we have the right resources for it, everybody's performing in a role that is at the absolute edge of the pressure that they're comfortable with. So we put them in spaces where they're capable of behaving like an expert, even if they're not an expert at everything all at once, right? So our PGY2, our post-grad year two, so they're two years into their residency training. That's the most junior role we have in the resuscitation rooms at this current hospital hospital, they focus on doing an ultrasound. That's it. They do an ultrasound, a focused assessment of uh, a trauma ultrasound to look for sources of bleeding, to look for potential injuries to the lungs. And then they shift into doing procedures if they're needed. And they are an expert at doing that ultrasound because they've spent a whole year training on it ahead of time before they're even allowed into the room, basically. The second person up, the person in the middle of PGY3 controls the airway and is there at that moment to do that. And during the course of the flow of this 300 seconds, the two star and I might agree, okay, this person's airway needs to be taken. And then it becomes the room of the airway person. And there's a very clear cut distinction of transition of power of who runs the room at that moment. Right, because everybody needs to know who the boss is, and often it will say, you know, okay, guys, we're taking. You know, the two star will say, okay, guys, Preston needs to take the airway. Preston, the room is yours, and you respond, folks, it's my room. I'm taking the airway. This is what we're doing. So there's a there's a really interesting. People have heard me talk about this, but there's at the elite teams there has been a slow movement away from leadership and followership to the concept of membership, and what that describes isn't that to your point people need to know who owns the room, who owns the room. People have to know that, 
But what happens in highly fluid teams is that is true. And what is also true is that instead of people standing back in sort of a external locus of control, right, a receptive waiting to be mm-hmm. told and thinking of themselves as followers, they think of themselves as members. So when they're there in a constant anticipation role, like I'm going to in a moment, I'm going to step forward and it might just be for a microsecond. But in that microsecond, I'm actually going to be the leader of the room. And then I have to know when to step back. And everybody's doing this dance where they're stepping forward, stepping back. That isn't to say that there's no leader. There is a clear leader. But it's this idea of a different mindset in highly fluid environments of moving from followership to membership. Is that is right. that fair? Yeah, totally. And I think something I've been really fascinated by with re- recently that I'm still sort of processing and trying to understand how I could better deploy in my resuscitation rooms is the work of David Marquet, who wrote the book, Turn the Ship Around, right? Who's the former captain of the nuclear submarine USS Santa Fe and has this idea of sort of intent-based leadership, which focuses a lot on this idea of how do you train each person on the team to own their role and own their space as much as possible yeah. and not have it be a push system or I don't know, I might be getting that backwards push-pull, but whatever, have each person sort of own their space and own their role and be proactive about that to the extent of their ability. So I think that's an open area of inquiry about how that works the best. But we do have this idea of graduated pressure where everybody has their role. We also really use protocols as much as are useful and possible, right? So, So there's an underlying reality to the way that human physiology works. And we leverage that whenever we can, right? So we have this idea of the ABCs of trauma, right? Airway, then breathing, then circulation. And essentially, you need to get oxygen to your brain, period. We all do. And in order to get oxygen to your brain, you have to have blood circulating to bring that oxygen. But if there's no oxygen being transmitted across the lungs, it doesn't matter if you have blood circulating. Similarly, there could be oxygen in the lungs, but if you can't get oxygen exchanged through your mouth and through the airway, the air pipes, essentially the trachea, then it doesn't really matter if your lungs are functioning the right way. So there are these functional hierarchical dependencies, A, then B, then C, airway, then breathing, then circulation. And we treat problems in that order. And what that allows us to do is cut through the mental fog that happens at the beginning of those 300 seconds and say, okay, I don't really know what's going on with this person, but whatever's going on, I'm going to start with airway. And I'm going to stay on airway until the airway is secure in one form or another. So what's really interesting about this, and this is the part where where some folks who think of themselves, you know, just to be overly generalizing here, if you think about the conventional military, the unconventional military, normal military and special operations, one of the differences is that one group who can predict a lot will build contingency plans because most of what they do is predictive. Special operations operates in a world where a lot of what they do can't be predicted. So they, instead of moving towards a lot of contingency planning, which they still do that, they also move to capacity building. Whatever shows up in the door, we have the capacity to sort it out. And this idea of find out what you can predict and control for and do so with the understanding that you cannot predict and control for everything. And too often people fall in the trap that they think they can predict the future. And that's often a recipe for disaster. Yeah, definitely. And capacity building, I think, is such an important piece of of what we're doing, whether that's training people ahead of time on how to do the ABC roles and also understanding within that moment that you have your plan of how you're going to proceed and you also have a plan B. And that's one of the things I talk about in the book a lot is making plan B part of your initial attack approach to make it part of your plan and to view that not as failure, but as an 
alternate opportunity for success. There's no shame in moving to plan B. In fact, that should be celebrated that you've recognized the situation has moved away from your normal situation and that now you're in a plan B approach. Yeah. And this is actually an optimal time to bring in the word praxis. So for those that are listening, praxis is different than practice. So praxis is spelled P-R-A-X-I-S. It's used a lot in educational theory. And it's the idea of, we talk about, in mission critical teams, we talk about the tacit knowledge transfer problem, which is this idea, I know what right looks like, but I can't explain it to you. And what that ends up happening is that in many teams, you have a tension between the folks whose knowledge is primarily tacit. They've done many iterations. They know what right looks like. They can't explain it to you, but if you just get out of their way, they can do it right. You've got the other side, extreme generalization here, that is fully academic. They have no lived experience, but they've read every article on the subject. So they actually know a lot deeply about it, but don't know how it's actually applied. And what ends up happening is you tend to get conflict between the two. One is judging the other as either being clueless or uninformed, right? And that's usually the tension. Praxis is an attempt to try to merge that, to try to merge tacit knowledge by being informed by theoretical knowledge. And it's the active process. It's a community learning. It's a learning environment where those that are tacit knowledge are trying to find the language to describe their lived experience and the folks who have the theoretical knowledge are trying to translate that into practice. And so when we talk about this context of there you are, you're, you're in this 300 seconds, you're maybe moving to plan B or you're trying to figure out how to move to plan B, it's currently suboptimal. And the question is, is that you've got voices in the room. Some are the experienced gray beards or blue hairs that are like, just do this. I've done it a million times. And there's somebody else in the room saying, well, actually, this latest article suggests that we should do this. And there's that tension between the two. And this is where praxis, especially in a medical environment, becomes so important. And so I turn that over to you to sort of talk us through how you navigate that sort of social context. That's a real scenario that you just described that happens literally all the time. Somebody's read a paper about something that says, well, you know, this new paper suggests we should do this. And then you have all the people in the room that are like, I've never heard of that. Why are we talking about this? Why are we not doing this old technique? And and that's a real thing. And as a sort of generalization, I think that people are more or less able to process new or old ideas depending on different times, right? Not all of us, we're not like a a robot that can just absorb things constantly and spit things out constantly, right? We are more or less receptive to ideas. And so, you know, you want to be at the cutting edge of medicine. You want to evolve, which is this concept again of wabi-sabi that nothing is perfect or permanent or complete. Whatever I know how to do, it's not the best thing in the universe. It's the best thing I have right now. And I want to get it closer and closer to whatever the best thing is that anybody knows how to do. But it's not always the right time to do that, especially in these 300 seconds of life or death, catastrophic failure sort of circumstances. So, as sort of a general rule, what we do in those 300 seconds is take care of the patient in front of us to the best of our ability with a minimum of fuss, essentially. Then before or after that, we're going to really debrief. We're going to plan. We're going to sim. We're going to practice. We're going to try these new ideas. We're going to do things ahead of time to make sure they're capable of being used in those 300 seconds, right? Unless there is a significant reason why I have to, I will not do a thing in those 300 seconds that I've never tried before out of those 300 seconds. Now, that does happen sometimes, right? When I was a brand new, you know, week one intern, I was tasked with placing a Blakemore tube, which is this 
balloon thing that basically goes and sort of tamponades, puts pressure on blood vessels in the esophagus from the inside. So imagine a giant balloon on a string that goes down and blows up from the inside of your esophagus, right? Well, if you don't blow it up enough, the person bleeds to death. If you blow it up too much, their esophagus explodes and they bleed to death. But you have to time it exactly right because the pressure on the chest changes whether you're breathing in or breathing out complicated problem. Also, the person's actively bleeding to death while you're thinking about it. Oh, and they're throwing up blood all over you. You know, so it, not exactly an ideal circumstance. But for various reasons, the circumstance happened where it was up to me to do that despite having never seen one and only having read about one once. And it was life or death to save this for this person. Now, we did it. We figured it out. I will never forget that moment. The person lived. It was amazing. But they equally could have died because, like, I'd never done that before. Yeah. And the, the point is not, hey, look at me, I can put a Blakemore tube in, right? The point is that we try to engineer systems that prevent moments like that from happening because those moments aren't the right things for our patients. Now, there's always innovation, right? There's these, these brief flashes of MacGyvering where, like, nothing else is working and you have to turn the tool upside down and use it, which also happens in the ER uh, and is celebrated rightfully. But most of the time, the scale should tip towards the balance of doing what you know how to do well and is tested, right? There's that, that old adage, if you want to dig a hole, you reach for a shovel that's been in the dirt, right? You want to use the shovel that's been in the dirt in those 300 seconds and then use all the time outside those 300 seconds to train your teams up and to be as good as possible. We're about to pivot to what comes after the immersion event. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that I wanted to sort of highlight in your book is something that for me has been, I guess kind of a lifelong pursuit of which I don't feel like I'm ever going to get great at. And it's this ability to rapidly accept reality. Mm. And it's this notion that there is what I want, that I, what I hope for, and what is <laughs> in any given moment. And to be able to be brutal enough with myself at any given moment to say, yeah, this would all be great, but this is what is right now. And so you need to rapidly accept this is what is and move from there. And I just know if in that 300 seconds, how you might go about communicating that. Yeah. Yeah. So that idea of accepting what you're facing and stepping forward towards it is an incredibly important piece of it. Without that, you're often paralyzed or you're angry or sad or you're something, but whatever that thing is, it's not directed towards the patient. So in my environment where this is normally a safe thing to do, I train myself and I train the folks around me to physically step towards the patient as the first thing that they do as an act of acceptance of reality, no matter what you're seeing. And it can be hard to see a lot of the stuff that comes in, right? But if you physically step forward towards it, you are at least moving and overcoming some of the initial friction that happens at that moment. So one thing is you step towards them and you put your hand on the person. Again, physically accepting the reality. This is real. This person is in front of me. Then you really try to pivot as fast as possible into the ABCs. So a lot of that is actually unspoken and trained ahead of time. Sometimes things happen in the middle where something goes wrong and you have to pivot to this new reality. And that's happened to me. You know, I've I've been in the middle of trying to take somebody's airway and the breathing tube gets dropped and it falls under the table and nobody can find it. And the person is now paralyzed and not breathing. And you have to move to the next thing, which occasionally is literally cutting their neck open and going for it that way. Or you open a kit and there's nothing at all like what you think is supposed to be in there in the kit. And in those moments, you sort of meld this idea of accepting reality with this other idea of of what I tend to call the discipline of suboptimal. Yeah. 
which is to develop an approach that allows you to rapidly pivot in those moments. This is something I'm also working with the folks at Arena Labs about is developing training around this, right? So to say to say something to yourself that enables you to acknowledge the, <laughs> the reality of the situation, which sometimes is just pure horror and sometimes is ridiculous and whatever it is in the middle there, it's not good. And to say something that allows you to, to process that, to acknowledge it, but not to be swept by it, not to go on tilt. And that gives that sort of middle ground. And so for me personally, that's the phrase, well, this is suboptimal delivered with as much deadpan and sort of, you know, dripping sarcasm from my voice as I can possibly come away with. I have a teammate of mine that says, "Uh uh-oh, SpaghettiOs. That's what he uses for it. It doesn't matter what the words are. The matter is that you practice it and get ready to say it like that. And that allows you to to keep that process of sort of reacclimating to what's going on around you. Yeah. And you mentioned the folks at Arena Labs. There's a few folks out now, Arena Labs probably being the best, who are working on this sort of human factor team-based problem mm-hmm. um, in a very scientific way in the medical environment. And um, Brian Ferguson, Jurgen Heitman, and others are doing some extraordinary work. What I'd like to do now is pivot us towards the end of the event. Uh, we're coming out of the immersion event. What's interesting in medicine is that there are going to be times where you're like, yeah, we nailed it. And there are going to be times where it doesn't work out and that's clear. The person died or we lost a limb or whatever. And then there's going to be periods of time where you just don't know. Like, we don't know. We won't know for a couple of days. We're going to, we did our best and and they're still alive, but we don't actually know if any of this worked. We're not, it's going to take some time to figure that out. And so there you are with a group of people. And let's go back to our resident, right? Who just had this extraordinary experience, right? Deep end of the pool. They're coming out of it. And so when you think about what comes after, what you say after, how do you think about that? Well, first off, I think you have to take a step back and and disentangle performance versus outcome, right? So outcome is the event that happens. The person loses their arm or the person dies or, or the baby lives or whatever. And performance is all of the things over which you had control to go back to this idea of locus of control. So I have control over my performance. I do not have control over the outcome. Metaphor I use sometimes is that of an archer, right? I have control over my training, how I hold the bow, everything that I do. But once the arrow leaves my bow, I don't control the universe or the wind or the target. So I don't actually control where the arrow lands. I just control how I shoot the arrow. And it's common, especially among folks that are more junior or just starting out in these environments to entangle those two concepts, right? There is a bad outcome. Therefore, I had bad performance or equally wrong. In some cases, there was a good outcome. Therefore, I had good performance. And the first time I heard about this kind of idea was actually from Annie Duke, who's a a former poker player champion turned decision-making expert. And she talks a lot about building a matrix, a performance outcome matrix, and literally walking yourself through everything that happened on that case. Well, okay. Was it a good performance, but a bad outcome? Was it a bad outcome, but a good performance? What, What happened here? And really taking the discipline and try to disentangle those things when she calls that technique fielding, fielding a a case. So with that concept sort of baked into the beginning, then we can sort of come to, okay, well, what do we do in certain of these circumstances? And one very common one, unfortunately, is an outcome where a patient dies, where the person you're caring for dies. And in those moments, I think it's really important to go back to your shared humanity And to remember that the person on the table was alive up until a few minutes ago. Now, for those moments of 300 seconds, you're not thinking about them as a person. Usually you're thinking about them as a complex collection of systems that you're trying to balance and levers and dials and everything else. But once you're out of that, they're a person. 
And rapidly returning to that idea of them being a person is incredibly important. So what I've come to do over the years is if my patient dies to put my hand on their foot or something and to ask for a moment of silence in the room and to say to the patient, thank you, sir or ma'am for teaching me. I'm sorry all my team could do today was learn. And that idea that you are again connecting with them as a human and that Maybe they're an anonymous person. You don't know who their family is. You don't have anybody to reach. You are the, you are the only human that's going to send them off into wherever they're going afterwards. And to hold the sort of sacred space of that moment as part of your job, I think is incredibly important and sets the tone of depth of respect for life for everybody else that you see and for everybody else on your team. That's usually a really heavy moment and, and taking a couple of seconds to regroup after that or more if you can is really, really clutch. It's a, such a profound thing that you just said. And it's worth noting that in the teams that I work on, it's often about technique. It's often about how we get better at a particular thing. But as my friend Sue Phillips at Sacred Design Lab and others will talk about, is that we cannot forget, you mentioned that humans are, humans are not robots in your book, and we cannot for, forget that at, that at the end of the day, we're still a bunch of human beings that not that long ago were sleeping in caves and talking around fires. And at the end of the day, deep down, we can be knowledgeable and skilled and we can be experienced and celebrated, but without connection and belonging, and without the sacred in some form, and I'm not talking about religion here, I'm talking about those sacred moments where a life enters the world or a life exits the world. And there is no, it is like the word love, it defies easy explanation. And in those moments that defy easy explanation, those sacred moments, it is worthy of all of us and it is really important for all of us as leaders to note that and to mark that for everyone so that they're aware that this is part of it. Like, mm -hmm. this is the world you're entering. And this goes back to the hero's journey. When you, when you accept the call to action, this is part of what you're accepting. You're in part, what you're accepting is to enter and be a guide in the sacred, to be responsible to guide others through the sacred, through the liminal. And, and to not, not deny it, to not, hide from it, but just to acknowledge it, that it is what it is. And to go back to that idea of, of being polished by the friction, to allow yourself to be washed in the suffering and to emerge from it a different human. Yeah. Right. You have to have that knowledge that you're going to emerge a different human when you come out of that liminal space. And that part of the joy of being an emergency doctor, and I would honestly assume the joy of being on any mission critical team is that you get to go through that so many times. Yeah. You get to go through that liminal space and emerge a different human so many times yeah. in a way that most, most people don't get to do. Most people get one or two in their life, maybe, maybe if they're lucky that they survive. And so this is where I kind of want to start to bring us to a close. And I want to actually focus on the joy part of it. I'm also yeah. going to ask you what advice you might give to our listeners at the end of this for what they might do different Monday. But before I do that, um, I want to talk about the fact that when people ask me, you know, I've been cold, wet, tired, hungry in all seven continents, and I get to work with the most extraordinary people in the world. And so what's the joy of the work? And the joy of the work is always this. The joy of the work is always working with somebody who is stuck, 
there is something that they believe about themselves, which isn't true. And it's my job to help them both see it and move beyond it. And once they move beyond it, there is a look that they give you, which is, oh, this is part of who I am too. (laughs) And once they know that, it changes all things because they can never look back at themselves quite the same way. And you know that you were a midwife for that person to go from who they were to who they could be. And I imagine that with residencies and being an attending physician, that part of the joy of your work is to help people who come in fists clenched, shaking, white-faced, I know I've chosen this life, but I'm just now starting to understand what that means. And I'm now questioning whether or not I can actually do this. And you turn to them. And in that moment, you give them just enough of your confidence that they can start to see their own confidence. And I I just want you to sort of speak to that joy for a moment. Absolutely. It is it is deep and amazing. And I am constantly lucky to get to work in that space. And I think that more than anything, that's why I wrote this book, right? Is to provide a little bit of vocabulary for everybody to start that journey and to hope that it's it's stuff that people can build these grander stories from and build better versions of themselves out of. But all of us who get to hold the line in one way or another. And my version of the line is in the ER, right? All of us who get to hold the line, who get to throw the best they have of themselves against the deepest problems that humanity has to face, get to go home from that, a different human being. And we talked earlier about never forgetting the first time that you do CPR, right? I think one of the biggest joys I've ever had is welcoming other people into that family. Yeah. To say, hey, you just did that the first time. You just did your best to restart that human's heart. You're never going to be the same again. You're never going to forget that. Remember that human. And in a couple of years, you're going to teach the next person to do this. Yeah. You're going to be on the other side of this. You're going to be welcoming somebody in to doing CPR. And the truth is, since all of us are human and all of us are mortal, at some point, it'll be my turn on the table. Yeah. Right. It'll be my turn on the table to die. And I'll be surrounded by people that might or might not have been people I've trained personally, but they're going through the system. I think that if I can live a life that works on mastering myself and how I perform under pressure and on serving the broader vision of humanity and the broader vision of the universe, then that's a life well lived. And that's that's drowning without fear and drowning in a way that tries to teach people how to swim. So amazing. It's been an extraordinary conversation. I've genuinely enjoyed this. I could keep talking, but I want to bring us to a close. But before we do, for those on the teams, when you think about Monday, right, uh, what's going to happen on Monday? When, What advice would you give those folks who are, you know, anywhere in their career, really, from your perspective? Uh, I think that we've talked a lot today, which I've also loved, and this has been awesome, right? We've talked a lot today about these broad sort of brush strokes about like, what is it to be a human that performs under pressure? What is it to bring the reality of existence into the resuscitation room? But so much of what we do is not at the level of, you know, these leaps and bounds. It's at the level of millimeters. It's just making things one millimeter better than they were. So I want you to think about the equivalent of this. When I go into a room and I think that patient's going to be coming in in a few minutes, one of the things that I do is I check the oxygen tank under the bed to make sure that it's full. Because in a number of minutes, if that patient survives, I might have to transport them on that bed to somewhere else. And I'm not going to be thinking about how full the oxygen tank is there. And it might be physically harder to reach the bottom of the bed at that point. And I might need that oxygen to get them somewhere. 
Now, okay, like Dan, what's the point of all this, right? The point is that you're never going to go home and tell stories around the fire about that oxygen tank. You're not going to be like, I made sure an oxygen tank was full tonight, and that is the expression of my humanity. But if we want to be the types of people, the types of men and women that go out there and make people's lives better, then we need to ask ourselves the practical question of what does it take to do that? And one thing that it takes is getting the oxygen tank full on the bottom of the bed. So you do that. You don't talk about it. You just do it. You do the small work that it takes to allow you to do the big work. And that's my challenge. And that's my question, which is whatever field you're in, whatever team you're on, the type of human you want to tell stories to the rest of the world about, what little boring things does that person have to do right on Monday to get to be that person they want to be? Yeah, so important. When I was an early wilderness guide, I, I spent a number of years working with Jamling Tensing Norgay, whose dad was Tensing Norgay, the first man to climb Everest. Jamling, even at that time, was famous. And in our staff house, he once put up a sign. And, it, and when I first saw it, it was funny, but it's never left me, actually. And the sign was, for all these passionate wilderness guides, and the sign was, before you go out to save the world, do your damn dishes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it was... Yeah. And at the time, it was it was written sort of in annoyance because people were doing their dishes. But to your point, in the years since, in the decades since, I think about that sign a lot. Before you go out to the world, you know, check the oxygen tank in the in the in the base, right? Do your dishes, and it because Absolutely. that's what you're often judged by. Everyone assumes you're going to save the kids in the burning building. That's kind of the price of admission. It's the dishes that become the problem. <laughs> Yeah. Dan, it's been such a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you so much. I look forward to connecting in person soon. And if we can be of service, please let us know. Listen, thank you. It's been an absolute honor to get to talk to you all and to everybody in the Mission Critical Teams Institute. Thank you again for listening to our Teamcast. For more information about the Mission Critical Team Institute, please go to www.missioncti.com or follow us on LinkedIn or Instagram. If you are a mission critical team that wants more information on our courses, please reach out to our director of operations, Janice Jackson at Janice at missioncti.com. That's J-A-N-E-S-E at missioncti.com. And once again, thank you, Janice. And thank you to Shelby Row Productions for helping us produce the Teamcast. Have a great day.